You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Harold Shipman, Dr. Death. Harold Frederick Shipman was born in the tidy, quiet Edward Lane's council estate about three miles from Nottingham Centre on the 14th of January, 1946, almost eight months after Victory in Europe Day. He was the middle of three children. His parents, Harold Sr. and Vera's first child, Pauline, had been born in 1938, just before Harold Sr. was shipped off to the war. He had been a printer's assistant before that, when he married 18-year-old Vera in 1937. Their youngest son, Clive, was born in 1950. Harold Sr. was a quiet and diligent man, who was a hard worker, but not ambitious. That was Vera's realm. She had come from very humble beginnings. Her own father was not named on her birth certificate, and she was determined to make a good life for her and her children. She kept her house pin-neat, and her children were well-behaved. They couldn't bear to see her disappointed, and so she never had to discipline through raising her voice or giving a quick smack. These kids weren't spoiled, though. They were disciplined and not used to getting treats or expensive presents. The kids were also kept apart from other children on the estate. They were rarely seen outside playing and socialising with the other children, Vera made sure to instill in them all the knowledge that they were somehow different, better even, than the other children. It was obvious that her oldest son, Harold Jr., otherwise known as Fred or Freddy, was her favourite. She had high hopes for the boy. She was delighted when Freddy managed to get into the local grammar school, High Pavement. Though he had been an above-average student in his junior school, Fred Shipman was decidedly adequate in his career in high pavement. His older sister Pauline left school at 15 and began working, and his younger brother Clive hadn't made it into high pavement, so Vera focused on Fred's career, and his schooling became an important focal point of the family. His schoolwork was the most important thing in the household, and this ensured that he never did become part of the gang of boys who played and messed in the street just outside his house. He continued on to take sixth form and sat the A-levels after sitting his GCSEs. He was a model pupil, despite his mediocre achievements. He was, however, a noted sportsman and played rugby with gusto, as well as being an accomplished distance runner. His gregariousness and aggression on the field were in stark contrast to the quiet, well-disciplined, aloof boy that he was in the classroom. Halfway through Fred's first year in sixth form, his mother Vera died. She was 47 and had been suffering from lung cancer. At the time, treatment for cancer was pretty much non-existent, and so she had stayed at home throughout her illness as she slowly deteriorated. A doctor visited daily to check in on her and to administer pain relief. 
Pauline was 25 by this time and had married and moved out. Clive, the youngest, was only 13. Much of the care of his mother fell to Fred when he returned from school, so he was intimately involved in her decline towards death. Seeing him was the highlight of her day. Although her death was not a shock to the family, it understandably had a huge impact on the household. Not only was the family bereft at her loss, but they also had to adjust to a day-to-day life without their caretaker. Fred's reaction to her passing that Friday evening was to leave the house and run in the rain to keep his mind from the emotional loss. He was back in school on Monday, as normal. His mother's death had a profound effect on Fred, and having watched her illness and its treatment at close hand, he decided that he would enter the medical field. He would become a doctor. On the second attempt, he got into Leeds University Medical School and secured a student grant from the county council as a stipend to pay for his supplies, rent and food and whatnot. Medical school was and is grueling. Fred spent much of his time in classes or studying, but he did socialise with his fellow students. He was quiet, but he wasn't a recluse. He was just a little introverted but he did like being part of the group. While he was a student at Leeds, he met his future wife, Primrose Oxtaby. She had grown up in a strict Methodist household. Her parents were both farm workers, and her mother, Edna, mirrored Fred's mother, Vera, in her determination to set her family up. They lived in Weatherby, north of Leeds. Primrose had one older sister, Mary, 13 years her senior, and though the two girls did have friends, they were set apart from the others by their strict upbringing. Edna's religious and conservative views meant that she deemed frivolous many of the normal activities of daily childhood life, like playing at other children's houses, attending youth clubs, and listening to pop music. Primrose took all of this in her stride, however. She enjoyed going to girl guides and playing sports, and never seemed to complain about all the things she was barred from doing or the unfashionable clothing her mother had picked out for her to wear. By the time she finished school in 1964, though, Primrose wanted to make a new start. She had earned a place on an art and design course and travelled daily to Leeds with a group of girls taking the 40-minute bus ride into the closest city. Primrose's exposure to the outside world led her to dissatisfaction with her mother's standards and morals, and she grew resentful of what she felt she missed out on. After college, she got a job in the city as a window dresser, and with the few pounds she had left over from paying for her keep and the bus, she started to venture out and enjoy things that had once been banned from her life, like the cinema. She was gaining independence. To the other girls on the bus, there was only a slight difference. She didn't buy new clothes and still went without makeup with her outmoded pudding bowl haircut, but she did seem more relaxed and confident. And she enjoyed the bus rides, particularly as it was where she met her first and only boyfriend, Fred Shipman. Fred and another first-year medical student had been assigned digs, basically student housing, in a lovely detached mock Tudor 1930s home, about 20 minutes from the centre of Leeds. He got on the same bus as Primrose every morning with his comrade and sat behind the girls who had boarded at Weatherby and listened to them chat and giggle on their way into town. 
They caught each other's eyes, and over a period of a few weeks, their nodded greetings turned into chatting on their journey, and then into dates. They had had similar upbringings, strict and working class, but with middle class aspirations. They were often on the peripheries of their classes growing up. Both were a bit naive and quite shy, and were wading out into what pop culture in the 60s was, with no guides, independent for the first time. Their relationship quickly deepened, and as two inexperienced young people, reveling in their new status as quote-unquote in a relationship, Primrose became pregnant. 1966 did not give the couple very many options to deal with this predicament, so the two would be married. Their families were, unsurprisingly, appalled at the whole affair. To make matters worse, Primrose's parents did not like Fred one bit. The wedding was not held in Weatherby, as Edna didn't want the whole town to see her daughter married while visibly pregnant. Such was her horror. They went to a registry office when Prim was six months pregnant, and the ceremony was witnessed by the two fathers. No guests or friends were present. On the 14th of February, 1967, their child, Sarah Rosemary, was born. The two moved into a tiny flat in Leeds, and lived sparingly off Fred's small stipend provided by the council. It must have been exceedingly difficult to live on such a budget, in such a confined space, while having a new baby, and with Fred attending medical school. But he struggled on, and managed to pass his exams. He worked hard, and again, maintained decidedly middle-of-the-road results. When the time for a placement in a hospital came to cap off his studies, he managed to get a position in a satellite hospital, which provided better accommodation for doctors and for their families. He took his wife and now three-year-old daughter south to Pontefract. During his first year there, the couple had a second child, Christopher Frederick Shipman. Fred took extra shifts working in the accident and emergency, or filling in as a locum doctor at a local general practitioner's office. Again, he remained somewhat apart from his colleagues. His time was taken up with work, family, and studying. Nurses tended to like Dr. Shipman. He was always available when they called, though some thought he was a bit arrogant. But he was reliable and good with parents. They had no idea that the man they were working alongside would later become known to the world as Dr. Death. His colleagues, the other doctors, recognized that dedication, but would note that he was often overconfident, which led him to step on toes. He would question the decisions of those above him, which may be another indication of his overconfidence, but might also be attributed to the fact that his direct boss was of South Asian descent, and Fred was a racist. Sarah Whitehead was a student nurse who worked with Shipman at Pontefract General Infirmary, who, realizing on his death in 1998 that she remembered her time working with him as a very bad period due to the amount of deaths that occurred during his stint, she went to the police. Her evidence was given to the Shipman inquiry. Up until this point, there had been no obvious evidence of Shipman having killed at the hospital, and it was thought that it would have been, one, difficult for him to be alone with a patient, and two, it would have been difficult for him to get his hands on the morphine he was accustomed to using. 
but on second inspection, it was decided that he would have been able to be alone with patients and he would have had access to non-controlled drugs that would have caused or hastened death. He certified 133 deaths in his three and a half years at the hospital. After his first six months, which would have been spent under close observation, there were four deaths where cause for concern was noticed. There's no definitive answer on where his killing began. It seems that it may have started in cases where death was being hastened, sick patients already dying being quote-unquote put out of their misery. This would have also avoided any suspicion falling on him if death was the ultimate outcome of the patient's illness. Three of the four patients whose cases came under suspicion in this time were in this category. The fourth was a relatively young woman, being only 49, and not expected to die. She had been prescribed medication that she shouldn't have been by Shipman. Was it negligence or murder? It's still not known for sure. But his pattern was emerging. Many of his patients died in the evenings when Shipman had access to them unobserved. There were no family or other visitors about, and the nurses were busy tending to the other patients. He was always about on the ward, and his presence at the proportion of deaths that he certified was unusual for a doctor, be it on a ward in a hospital or as a GP. In 1972, 12 deaths that he was present for and pronounced were deemed suspicious, with three of those being deemed clearly as having been murders. Thomas Columbine was 54 when he died in April 1972. He was a difficult patient who didn't trust doctors. He was a bus and truck driver and had chronic bronchitis and emphysema. He ignored medical advice. He persisted in smoking despite his lung issues and difficulty breathing. Shipman was irritated by him. Mr. Columbine's records were a mess of crossed out and written over notes by Shipman. He was given a fatal dose of morphine when his family had been sent away from his bedside after he rallied somewhat from his persistent illness. Shipman had sped things up a bit. 84-year-old John Brewster was admitted to the hospital two weeks later with a serious heart condition. He had been refused admission to the local geriatric unit because they didn't have enough beds. At 6pm, his family left to collect some toiletries for him, and they received a call at 9 to say that he had died. Shipman was alone with him when he died, and he said the man had been in a coma for 45 minutes or so before he passed. But no other staff was called, nor was his family. On his records, Shipman notes that there's no need for the coroner to be informed, despite the fact that this was policy if a patient had died within 24 hours of admission to the hospital. A number of deaths in Pontefract General Infirmary followed this pattern, Shipman attending alone and witnessing the death, in the evening, in a side room where he would be unobserved, irregularities with Shipman's notes in the medical records. Sometimes the deaths would be clustered together in twos and threes. But the records of his patients at this time are partial, and it's difficult to say more than some of these deaths appear at varying degrees of suspicious, and the amount of deaths he was present for alone is statistically unlikely. It seemed Shipman had reined himself in in the last two months of his stint on the medical ward in 1972. 
and the incident that put a halt to the suspicious deaths was the death of Mrs. Phyllis Cooling. She was a 58-year-old widow, and she was admitted to the ward with some breathing trouble. Three hours later, she was dead. Her sons had briefly left her side to get her some leucozade and fruit, and they were shocked when they returned to find that she had passed away. The patient in the neighbouring bed was also shocked. There were no medical records, only an account that she died after being given an injection and not responding to it. There are no medical records, so we don't know what Shipman gave her, but it was clear that her death was due to the injection. The death would have also appeared as obviously due to the medication Shipman gave her to the other medical staff in the vicinity, but Shipman seems to have managed to talk his way out of the incident, and then the suspicious deaths in the ward stopped for a time. Shipman moved on to work at the pediatric wards. In his 13 months there, he was present for only seven deaths. It was probably quite difficult to get time alone with the patients, as very sick children tend to have someone with them or near them at all times. One of the deaths was suspicious, however. Susie Garfish was a four-year-old who was severely disabled. She had cerebral palsy and was a quadriplegic. She was nearly blind and never spoke and had epilepsy and severe difficulty eating. She was brought into hospital by her parents when her condition deteriorated. They were told that she had pneumonia and that there was very little that the medical staff could do for her. Her mother made the decision not to treat the pneumonia and told the doctor to be kind to her. She left the room to get a cup of tea. The poor child was on a decline to the inevitable. When her mother returned, Susie had died. It's likely that Shipman hastened her death. Neither her mother or her father got to say goodbye or spend the last few minutes of her life with Susie. The speed and suddenness of her death makes this death fall into the significantly suspicious category. Shipman again moved on. After a brief six-month stint in obstetrics and gynecology, Shipman made the move into general practice. He had not performed well in the new specialty, he had no patience and was too rough with the women in his care. It was during this time that his addiction to pethidine began. Pethidine is an opioid that is most well known for its use during childbirth. When it was synthesized in the 1930s, it was said that it wasn't addictive, and so some medical practitioners ended up hooked on the drug when they took it for aches and pains, thinking that there was no harm. It's used in relatively large doses, making it harder to become dependent on it. It's likely that Shipman, in the relatively new fields of obstetrics and gynecology, prescribed larger-than-necessary doses to his patients and siphoned off some of the drug for himself, administering a lower dose to those who needed it. This probably wouldn't have been noticed by the overworked nursing staff or those in charge of the drugs. In any event, he left Pontefract after six months in the maternity wards, and moved to general practice in Todmorden. There are three confirmed murders from this time, and another 21 cases where it's highly suspected that there was foul play involved. No one knows the true number. Todmorden was a small little town to the south and west of Leeds, between that city and Manchester to the south, with the town being half in the county of Lancashire and half in Yorkshire. Fred took up his position in a busy practice, the Abraham Omerode Centre. 
He had three full-time colleagues and one part-time doctor on his team. The practice served up to 12,000 of the town's population, and the team were very happy to have a dedicated and hard-working colleague join their overstretched ranks. Not only did he get stuck in with seeing patients, he took work home on his own time and helped make efficiencies and streamline things in the surgery, which the other doctors hadn't had the time to do. He seemed to them to be some sort of saviour. The family took a mortgage out on a pleasant semi-detached home, with a lovely view out over hills. Primrose had picked it out after being driven around the town by another doctor's wife. But she wasn't like the other wives. They usually kept themselves somewhat apart from the rest of the community, given the status of their husbands and presumably the information that they might be privy to. They were respected, but there were certain expectations of them from the town. At this stage, Primrose was a bit plump and dressed kind of scruffily. She was loud and a bit coarse. Some people thought her bubbly, and others found the loudness a bit overpowering. She wasn't what one thought of when they conjured up the picture of the local doctor's wife. The Shipman couple nonetheless became involved in the community, both of them working on a community enterprise to dig out and restore a local canal. Fred went to work on the house and built a garage, sort of, it was a bit rickety, and laid out the front garden as a formal pink and red rose affair. The couple enjoyed entertaining their neighbours, and Primrose relished serving up her home-cooked meals to impress them. The neighbours noted that the house, while a bit untidy and cluttered, was clean. Primrose made friends with the other wives on the street. Fred remained aloof, though. He worked long hours and preferred his own company. But when he did talk to the neighbours, he seemed to enjoy dispensing medical advice and talking about his job. This was pretty unusual for a local doctor. The first death that Shipman was responsible for while at the GP practice was in August 1974. He attended Mrs. Orlinsky while she was in labour and gave her a dose of pethidine that was far too high. The drug crossed the placenta and affected the baby's breathing. Within 24 hours of birth, Shipman was recalled to the house to treat baby Christian, who had turned blue and was struggling. Rather than admit the baby to hospital, Shipman delayed, and the baby died. His cause of death is listed as sudden infant death syndrome. The shocked first-time parents trusted Shipman and didn't question this at the time. While this death may have been an accident, the next incident most certainly was not. Shipman treated 25-year-old Elaine Oswald for suspected kidney stones. He prescribed diconal, a mild opiate, and sent her home to rest. He said he would be over to the house later to take blood for a test, though why a blood test might be needed for kidney stones remains a mystery. A urine test would have been more appropriate. Elaine ran some errands before returning home and tidying up, given she was expecting the doctor round, before taking the two pills and heading up the stairs to bed. She was drowsy and remembered Dr. Shipman coming in and taking blood and moving to her other side, possibly for an injection. She fell unconscious and came round to Shipman attempting to revive her with an ambulance crew present. When she arrived at the hospital, she got the impression that the staff there thought that she had taken too many pills or had taken other drugs with the diconal. 
Shipman told her that she had had an allergic reaction to the opiates and that she shouldn't take them in the future. It was only when the Shipman inquiry began that Elaine realised what had happened to her. Though it's clear that Shipman hadn't intended on killing her, given he made efforts to save her life, he certainly came close to it by administering extra opiates to her, for whatever reason. He had managed to maintain his supply of pethidine by writing bogus prescriptions for patients, and as a supply for the surgery itself, and so his dependence on the drug continued. Although there were some suspicions about the amount that he seemed to be obtaining, his reputation as a good, kind, and dedicated doctor protected him from any action being taken by the Home Office Drugs Inspectorate. They decided only to monitor the situation to ensure that there was no abuse going on. 1975 was the year that Shipman started to develop his M.O. for killing while in general practice. There were three very suspicious deaths on January 21st alone. 84-year-old Elizabeth Pierce was a widow and lived with her daughter. Shipman was in the house when she died. The next was Bob Lingard, who was 63 years old and who had had breathing difficulties. He also died while Shipman was in the house. Finally, Lily Crossley was a terminal cancer patient. She lived with her siblings in the house, and on that day she was well enough to come down the stairs from her room a few times and give out to the others for having the central heating on. Shipman called to the house at half seven and gave her an injection. She was dead an hour later. March 1975 marks the first official murder of Shipman's since moving to the GP firm. Eva Lyons was a 69-year-old married woman who was suffering from terminal esophageal cancer. She had had radiotherapy, and by that time, she was able to eat on her own again. Shipman was keeping a close eye on the woman, and the day she died, he called to the house at 11pm and gave her some drugs intravenously. He sat chatting to her husband for a few minutes after that, and then announced, She's dead. It's certainly the case that the woman was dying, and was in pain, but there's no doubt in this instance that Shipman hastened her death. Her daughter was in London at the time, and never got to say goodbye. By May of 1975, his pethidine addiction started to impact his life. He began passing out and collapsing, and was diagnosed as having epilepsy. The doctors in the practice were hugely upset. Now that Fred had been diagnosed, it meant that he was no longer able to drive. But Primrose stepped in and said she would do all his driving for him, and so he would be able to keep his job. His colleagues were relieved. The next month, the Home Office Drugs Inspectorate decided to meet with the doctors at the Abraham Omarod Medical Center because they had been made aware of the fact that one of the local pharmacies had been providing a disproportionately large amount of pethidine to the office, and to Dr. Shipman in particular. The records of controlled substances used in the surgery were basically non-existent, so it was decided between the office and the doctors that they would continue to closely monitor the situation and that the drugs would have to be monitored and recorded properly. They would meet again in six months' time. Then in July, one of the receptionists was over-chatting with the chemist staff, which was across the road. The staff member there had left open the ledger that showed that Dr. Shipman was still accessing large amounts of pethidine, and the receptionist saw the records of this. When she went back over to the practice, she informed a doctor there, John Darcy, about what she had seen. 
He began to investigate himself, and even went so far as to visit patients that Shipman had prescribed the drug to. They confirmed that Shipman had never given pethidine to them. Darcy called a meeting for the doctors the next Monday and told the rest of the practice, including Shipman, what he had found. Amazingly, Fred did not deny the evidence before him and admitted that the pethidine had been for his own use. He said that he had gotten addicted to it in medical school after having to do an experiment with it that involved taking it. He asked them if they could just forget about it and cover it up. The other doctors said that Fred would have to go to hospital and get treatment and leave the practice. Initially, Fred left, agreeing that he would go into hospital, but he returned in a fury, saying that he wouldn't leave, nor would he go to hospital to be treated for addiction. The doctors ran their solicitor, who told them that they had grounds for dismissal, and it would be up to Fred to prove wrongful dismissal if he decided to take a case against them, and it was unlikely that he would be successful given the evidence of his drug abuse. Fred stormed out in a rage, but eventually was admitted to the retreat in York for his problem. It was an exclusive psychiatric clinic in York. He went through detox, and when this was completed, he was diagnosed with moderately severe depression and given medication for this. While there, he had a visit from a police officer from the West Yorkshire Drug Squad, and though Shipman initially refused to speak to him, eventually he told the officer a tale of having started abusing pethidine some 18 months earlier because he was having difficulties with the other doctors in the practice. But the experienced policeman noticed that the veins in Shipman's arms and legs had already collapsed, which indicated to him that Shipman had been an IV drug user for much longer than 18 months, possibly even up to five years. At the end of the interview, he assured the officer, and wrote a statement to this effect, that he had no future intentions of working in a situation where he would have access to pethidine in large amounts. With that admission, Shipman was now facing court. He left the retreat in December 1975, and continued to see his psychiatrist. Meanwhile, there was chaos left in his wake. His partners in the practice had to buy him out. Primrose had to move with the two kids back to her family's house because they couldn't pay the mortgage with Shipman not working, though this would mark the last time that Primrose would have anything to do with her parents. When their old house was bought, the new owners noticed that the place was filthy when they were moving in, and it seemed that sometime over the previous year, untidiness had lapsed into uncleanliness. Between the kids and driving Shipman around, Primrose had let things go. Everyone in the town knew about Shipman's problems with drugs, and why the family had suddenly disappeared. Everything had changed. He was up in court in February 1976 and pled guilty to eight charges ranging from obtaining a controlled substance by deception, possession, and forging declarations for the scripts. He was fined £75 on each charge and ordered to hand over another £59, which he had defrauded the NHS of, for a grand total of £657. He was to make monthly payments of 50 quid. The medical council decided to take no action against him, though they could have suspended him or taken his name off the register of medical practitioners. He took up a job in Durham, over a hundred miles away from his former residence, working at the health authority as a clinical medical officer. It was a sort of liaison position between the authority and the local GPs. 
Shipman and his family got cheap housing with the job too, in Newton Acliffe, in a brand new semi-detached house in a little cul-de-sac. The 18 months the family spent there were relatively quiet. Shipman had no access to controlled drugs, and limited access to patients. But eventually he moved on, and applied for a new job he saw in the British Medical Journal. The family would move on to the town of Hyde. In October 1977, Fred Shipman joined the Donnybrook practice in Hyde. He had been upfront about his addiction problems and his convictions, and the other doctors in the practice checked with his references and the medical council and found that what he had told them was accurate. He was off the drugs, and he interviewed well, and so he was invited along. The practice was housed in a purpose-built surgery in the centre of the town, and it and another practice, located next door in the same building, had been established when the local independent GPs decided to join forces and have better facilities by all being located in the same place. The doctors shared the expenses, but were still basically independent. The more patients they saw, the more money they took home. This setup suited the hard-working Fred to a T, and soon he had one of the largest patient lists in the practice. He was pretty much always available to his patients, and they loved the extra care he seemed to take with them. The Shipmans rented a house for a year, leaving the landlord distressed to find the state of it when they moved on. They then took out a mortgage on a four-bedroom semi in Longendale, a village about 15 minutes from Hydetown Centre. It's a cute little leafy village with expensive homes, but the Shipmans were financially strapped and their house was not one of these. Not only was Fred paying off his fine, he also had to buy into the Donnybrook practice. The house was shabby and remained so, sticking out in the otherwise well-maintained cul-de-sac of Rowcross Green. They never moved from this house, even when their financial situation improved, which was surprising for the family of a doctor. The Shipmans went on to have two more children, David in March of 1979 and Sam in April 1982. Initially, Fred's new colleagues were delighted with the addition to their team, though it became apparent eventually, as time went on, that he was stubborn and rude. He saved up his ire particularly for the non-medical staff in the surgery. He was ignorant and wouldn't greet the receptionist in the morning. He would take a disliking to a new member of staff and demand that they be let go. He preferred working with junior members of staff who would not stand up to him or speak up for themselves. He clashed with the practice manager, who invariably stood up for the staff under her. He even tried to get her fired for nothing more than a personal dislike. He brought it up constantly at meetings with the other doctors, but they refused to agree. In the last year or so he was with that practice, he even refused to speak to her, making her write everything down and leave notes for him in his office. The other doctors said, although he was pushy and liked his own way, he was always polite to them. He seemed to enjoy going on power trips and humiliating people he saw as inferior to him. But he never yelled or raised his voice. His weapons of choice were sarcasm and belittlement. He was controlling, and another element of this could be seen when he was on call in the evenings and at weekends for the practice. He made a point of calling in unexpectedly on his aging patients, and the deputized doctor's service that they used for overnight calls was often instructed to ring him first with patient details so that he could decide if he would see them that night, 
rather than the service doctor that they used. His time in Donnybrook was also marked with a number of outside interests that he took up with great gusto and then dropped suddenly. He joined the St. John's Ambulance and the Parent and Teacher Association, along with various political medical organizations. Each hobby horse was marked by intense involvement, followed by a swift withdrawal, dropping all associations with the organization. In one of his positions, as secretary of the local medical council, he inspected other GPs' premises and dealt with issues raised to him by other GPs. In one instance, he was approached by two GPs who were concerned about their third partner in the practice, who they knew was struggling with addiction issues. Fred advised them that the two should just try and help the other GP, and never pass the concerns up the chain, meaning that there was a delay in dealing with the problem, which possibly put patients at risk. He was also very willing to put himself out there in the public, and enjoyed talking to the media, giving quotes and interviews, and speaking and debating in public. By all accounts, he was a good person to have on your side. He was very knowledgeable, if not an intellectual, and got great satisfaction from scoring points in arguments. It made him feel superior, and he saw it like combat. He often emerged victorious. When computers were introduced into the practice, he was initially against it, but then when he realized that if he knew a little bit about them, it was yet another thing that he could feel superior about. He pretended to be a technical whiz and disparaged people who weren't computer literate. It was clear to anyone with actual understanding of computers, though, that Fred didn't really know what he was talking about. And Fred would find out that this was true a few years later, to his detriment. The Shipmans yet again kept themselves apart from Fred's colleagues in the surgery. Primrose began minding children in her home. They pretty much stopped socialising, and Primrose stopped giving dinners for colleagues and neighbours. There was one occasion when they hosted Fred's colleagues in the house, their daughter Sarah's 18th birthday. They also had a dinner in the local hotel for Fred's 40th birthday the next year. But they refused to attend the 21st anniversary of the opening of the practice, and did not attend retirement parties or leaving dues. Fred didn't even take time off for his father's funeral in 1985. Harold Sr. had died suddenly of a heart attack at 70 years old. Fred didn't seem to be upset about the death, but he was upset on realising that his father had left the family home to his sister, who would in turn leave everything to their youngest brother, Clive. Fred had been left out of the will, and he fell out with his siblings because of it. The Shipmans were rocketing towards social isolation from friends, colleagues, and even their own families. Fred's first confirmed murder in Hyde was in 1978, almost a year after he had taken up the position. Although there are three or four that happened before this that are suspicious, but can't be confirmed. Sarah Marsland was 86 when she died in her own home. Shipman went on to kill five others in the following year, but then he stopped for nearly a year. It appears he became more careful after a couple of close calls. The first was an incident involving Alice Gordon. He had thought that he had killed her, and as he was discussing arrangements with her daughter over her body, Alice let out a groan. She wasn't dead, and with her family present now, Fred couldn't finish her off. Alice fell into a coma and died a day later. The next attempt he made involved Jack Shelmarden, who was 77. 
Shipman had given him a large dose of morphine, but it took 30 hours for poor Jack to die, and he ended up in hospital. Shipman was worried that the hospital's involvement, in conjunction with a complaint against the hospital lodged by Jack's son, might result in an investigation, and even worse, a post-mortem. But the matter was dropped by Jack's family. It would be some time before Shipman indulged in his only long-standing hobby once more. In 1981, Shipman remained cautious, killing only two patients, none the next year, and only two again in 1983. But he seemed to regain his confidence in 1984. He killed 57 people between then and 1989. That year, he killed 12 patients, one in his own examination room at the surgery. 81-year-old Mary Hamer came in for a routine appointment to see Dr. Shipman. It wasn't anything serious, otherwise she definitely would have mentioned it to her daughter. She was a lively woman for her age. She socialised and took care of her house, even clambering up a ladder twice a year to change out her curtains. When she arrived at the surgery, Shipman called her into the examination room and told her to get undressed. He then left to see other patients, saying he would be back shortly. About 30 minutes later, he called to reception to tell them that he thought Mrs. Hamer was dead. He later told her daughter that when he had got back to the examination room, her mother was having a heart attack. He said that he gave her some morphine to dull the pain and went out to ring for an ambulance. When he arrived back into the room, Mrs. Hamer was dead. Though no evidence of a phone call for the ambulance was found, no post-mortem was ordered. He halted his killing once again later that year when a nurse arrived in a house shortly after he had killed 85-year-old Joseph Wilcoxon. Perhaps the nurse made a comment that made him put a halt to it once again. In 1990, his count of dead patients was down to two, and there were none at all in 1991. He was planning on moving from Donnybrook, and had resisted the urge to hasten the death of the elderly of Hyde for the moment. 71 patients died by his hands in the 17 years that he was with the Donnybrook practice. During this time, it appears that he went back to over-prescribing patients their opioid pain relief and holding on to the extra for his own use. But this time, that did not include sating his own addiction. There is no question that he returned to abusing drugs. This time, he used it purely for his hobby of killing elderly patients. When Fred left the Donnybrook practice, he did it on his own terms, and according to his own rules. When he had arrived at the surgery, he inherited the patient list of the doctor that had just left. But when Shipman decided to go out on his own and set up his own practice, he took all his patients with him. There was no way to replace Shipman because there were no patients to offer a new incoming GP. The other doctors also had to buy out his share of the Donnybrook building. They had to pay his tax bill for the earnings from the previous year, as Shipman point-blank refused to hand over any money to the practice after he left. And he poached two members of staff to his new practice. Shipman screwed the Donnybrook practice over. Completely. His new practice was located in a row of shops on Market Street, a short walk from the square at the centre of Hyde, and was known locally as simply The Surgery. While there, he killed a total of five people in the office alone. He had the place to himself and was accountable to no one, 
which made this an easier achievement than at the Donnybrook. The first victim in this sort of scenario was Joan Harding, another fit and active elderly lady. She was 82 years old when she visited Shipman in the surgery. A friend waiting outside in the car was informed that Joan had passed away from a massive heart attack while having her blood pressure taken. Betty Moss was 68 when she visited Shipman to have her heart checked by the doctor. There were no concerns over her health that day. Dora Ashton was older at 87, but again still a fit woman when Shipman informed her family that she had had a stroke in the surgery and died. She had been on medication for her blood pressure, and so her family didn't question it when they heard the news. Edith Brady had attended the surgery to have a routine vitamin B12 injection. She was 72 when Shipman instead administered morphine, and she died on the spot. After a year break of murders on the premises in May 1997, Ivy Lohman, 63, attended Dr. Shipman for a pain in her arm. He gave her an injection and went on seeing patients as the woman died. He never tried to resuscitate her, which surprised the police that were called when he did bother to inform the reception of what had happened. She would be exhumed 16 months after her burial, and Shipman would be charged with her murder. Fred's attitude took on a near-godlike status once he was in his own practice, with no one to temper his ego. He was so good with patients, and they all worshipped him. Hardly anyone ever questioned him or his decisions. All the while, he was knocking off the elderly, with no one the wiser. The Shipman family maintained their aloofness from their neighbours when they moved to Rowcross Green, which was not difficult given that the estate that they lived in was mainly inhabited by people who undertook the commute to Manchester. But the Shipmans did involve themselves in their children's education and social lives. As mentioned previously, they were involved in the Parent-Teacher Association, and one of their sons was particularly good at rugby, and they helped organise things in the rugby club. Fred even took on organising a trip for the kids' team to Ireland and Wales, which were considered a huge success by the other members of the club. Primrose helped out with the other mothers, making sandwiches and organising fundraisers. But even still, they never really engaged socially with those they came in contact with. Their neighbours had very little contact. Occasionally, they would talk to Fred about gardening, which was his favourite pastime when not in work. No one entered their house, though. At some stage in the years after Fred set out on his own, Prim had given up entirely. She had never really cared about her appearance, but the house became a total tip, and the place was a mess. They simply couldn't receive visitors. Fred actively solicited money from his patients for what he termed as his patient's fund to buy equipment and other supplies for the surgery. This was highly unusual for a doctor to do. Some practices would have such a fund set aside if a wealthy patient bequeathed some money to the surgery or the like, but Fred actively canvassed for people to leave donations or money in their will. This money was administered properly and independently, though, and doesn't seem to have formed much of the motivation of his murders. That said, he had pocketed cash and jewellery from some of his victims and informed relatives of those that he had killed that the deceased had promised certain belongings to him before their death. He had moved on from over-prescribing pethidine when he decided that someone needed to die. In his own practice, he discovered another source. 
He would pocket the leftover diamorphine from his patients who had a morphine pump when they ultimately died. He'd write them large prescriptions and gather up the unused stock for his own purpose. While there was absolutely no oversight for this in his surgery, it did make it much easier to track his accumulation of opiates after the fact. By the second year of his practice, Shipman had resumed his previous pattern of cluster killing due to this new source of diamorphine, and with the 14 little bottles that he had acquired between February and August of 1993, 13 patients were killed. In August, he hit a jackpot when one of his terminal cancer patients with a morphine pump, Raymond Jones, died leaving a huge amount of the drug unused. Fred took 20 or 30 vials, each holding 100 milligrams. They should have gone back to the pharmacy to be disposed of, but they ended up with Shipman. With this new source, he would never be short of what he needed to kill off his patients. He had another close call in February 1994 when he tried to kill Renata Overton. She was only 47. Her daughter called an ambulance and she was taken to the hospital where she remained in a persistent vegetative state for 14 months before finally passing away. When the ambulance crew arrived, he told them that he had administered diamorphine and the hospital realised that the amount given must have been a much larger dose than he had reported. It looked like negligence. It's possible that, after this, fearing that there would be an investigation, Fred destroyed his supply of diamorphine. He put a halt to his killing for a whole three months. He killed 11 patients in 1994, after the scare caused by Renata Overton's death, but in 1995, this rocketed up to 30, and the same again in 1996. Halfway through that year, he ensured a new supply of diamorphine. Another patient had terminal cancer, and he prescribed him a total amount of 12,000 milligrams of the drug. Dr. Shipman himself collected the drugs from the chemist and kept it. This amount would have been enough to kill 360 average-sized adults. He began to take measures to conceal further what he was doing by turning up the heating in the houses that he killed in. It meant that rigor mortis set in more quickly and meant that the body temperature was maintained at a higher level than normal, making it almost impossible to get an accurate time of death from assessing the body of the deceased alone. Though he now has a reputation for killing elderly old women, most of his victims were not ill. He certainly wasn't motivated by mercy. In some cases, he decided to kill off people who questioned him or didn't take his advice. He had a particularly bad habit of killing the healthier of the two in an older couple. For instance, Lily Taylor refused to send her husband to a home because he had Alzheimer's. A few days after this refusal of Shipman's advice, Lily was murdered by Shipman. Her husband was sent off to a care facility. What's more, despite his reputation of a caring doctor who was willing to give his time to spend with and listen to his patients, he was often unkind and uncaring to the families of the people who had fallen victim to him. He callously told them that their loved one was dead, and to get on with things. In 1997, 37 patients of Shipman's were murdered by their doctor. In December of 1997, Bianca Pomfret died in her living room, sitting on her couch. She was 49 years old and divorced, though she was still close with her ex-husband, Adrian, who felt he had a responsibility towards her. 
Bianca had been diagnosed with manic depression a number of years before, and although she lived alone, her family made sure to keep an eye on her. She discussed nearly everything with her ex-husband. She had medical support from the hospital that she attended for her mental health problems, and from her beloved GP, Fred Shipman. Shipman had a lot of time for her and would see her on a weekly basis, just to check in, really. She was devoted to him and, in fact, had planned on leaving nearly everything she owned to Shipman in her will. Adrian, though, managed to convince her that their son and his wife and children would benefit more from it and that this was what she really should do. And so, a couple of weeks before her death, she changed her will, leaving everything to her family. She was found when a support care worker called to the house and saw her lying on the sofa. She looked like she was asleep, but wasn't responding to the knocks on the door. The support worker called her son William, who came by with a key. When they got into the house, Bianca was cold, lying on the couch with a cup of coffee and half a smoked cigarette in the ashtray next to her. The ambulance was called, and Shipman was notified. But Shipman already knew that she was dead. He was at his office creating ten fake entries for Bianca on her medical records on his computer. When he arrived at the house, he informed William that Bianca had suffered from angina in her last ten months of life, something that she had never mentioned to her son or ex-husband, unusual for someone who was otherwise so preoccupied by her health. The growing numbers of patients of Shipman who were dying did raise suspicions, however, although not immediately among his colleagues in the medical field. A taxi driver named John Shaw, who made his money driving the elderly ladies of Hyde around, bringing them to bingo or shopping or to collect their pensions, noticed that a large amount of his clientele, who had been reasonably healthy, were dying. And they were all Dr. Shipman's patients. Home health workers also noticed that a number of people in whose homes they worked were suffering from sudden unexpected deaths in huge amounts, and these patients happened to be patients of Dr. Shipman. Most notably, one of the local funeral homes in Hyde, the Masseys, realised that Fred was sending a large amount of business their way. What was more unusual, however, was that Shipman was present at the deaths more than usual. The deceased were found in their homes, more often than not dressed, and sitting in a chair in their living rooms, and their family were baffled as to how their loved one could just suddenly up and die with no illness in the run-up to it. Eventually, Alan Massey and his daughter and son-in-law, who also worked in the business, went to another doctor in the area, one who worked just across the street from Shipman's surgery. They were often called on to countersign forms allowing former patients of Shipman's to be cremated. The funeral directors said that they were concerned about the numbers and manners of death that Shipman was involved in and was present for. Initially, the Masseys were told that this was due to the makeup of Shipman's patient list, mostly older ladies, and that Shipman had a reputation for being available to his patients, and so it was expected that he should be present for a larger than normal amount of deaths. But one doctor at the practice, Dr. Laura Reynolds, took the concerns seriously. After realising that there was a significantly larger amount of deaths of Shipman's patients, she went to the medical doctor's union, and then to the coroner. The coroner was not unused to being asked to look for the cause of death by fellow GPs, who might think a colleague had gotten the ultimate cause of death wrong. So he took the concerns to the local police, who began a cursory investigation. 
it had to happen quietly because if Shipman found out that Dr. Reynolds had cast suspicion on him and he turned out to have done nothing wrong, her career would likely have been ruined. In any case, the investigation did not order postmortems on the two Shipman patients who had most recently died and were awaiting cremation. If they had, it would have been noted that the two women had both died of an overdose of diamorphine. Another GP who admired Shipman's practice was asked to review medical records and reported finding nothing wrong. He was reassuring to the police that Shipman was just an exceptional doctor who was fond of his patients and that this explained any irregularities. Alan Massey grew impatient waiting for the results of what would turn out to be a very cursory investigation and decided to go to Shipman himself. He made an appointment at the surgery and spoke to Fred at the end of the day, putting to him his concerns about the number of deaths that were occurring among Fred's patients. Shipman, calmly and with no apparent unease, reassured Alan that all was well, that the deaths could be accounted for and explained, and Alan left feeling a bit sheepish that he had thought that there was something wrong. And now, Shipman knew that people were asking questions. The detective inspector in charge of this investigation also interviewed the Masseys, but it was more of a reassurance to them that he had investigated and found that nothing was amiss in the deaths associated with Shipman. There was no written report of the investigation, and they hadn't even looked to see if Shipman had any previous convictions. The coroner also accepted these results. People trusted him. His patients, his colleagues, the police. Who doesn't trust their doctor? Three more women would die in May and June following this inadequate investigation. On June 24, 1998, Kathleen Grundy, ex-mayoress of Hyde and 81-year-old widow, failed to show up for one of her volunteering positions, serving lunch to local old folks. She was a very active woman for her age. She worked in a local charity shop two days a week and was highly involved in her community. She was also quite a wealthy woman. She owned a number of properties and had assets of in and around £400,000. She was a sprightly and gregarious woman, despite her age, and it was very unlike her to not show up for her jobs. And she wasn't answering the phone. The previous day, she had been visited by her local GP in her home, who was going to draw blood and to have her sign some paperwork. Two of her colleagues from the charity shop called by to check on her when she hadn't turned up, and when they got no answer to their knock, they went into the house through a door that was surprisingly unlocked. When they got into the living room, they saw Kathleen, fully dressed and lying curled up on the couch. She would have looked as if she was asleep, except for the greyish tinge to her complexion. The two men knew Mrs. Grundy's GP, Dr. Shipman, and so they called him to the house. When he arrived, he did a cursory examination of Mrs. Grundy and told the men that he had spoken to her that very morning. She hadn't felt unwell, though, and she must have felt well enough to get dressed because when he had seen her, she was still in her nightclothes. The doctor said it looked like she had died from cardiac arrest. He told the two men to contact a solicitors in the village. When they called the firm, the lawyers told the two that they didn't act for Miss Grundy, but had received a copy of a will purporting to be from her that very morning. 
They advised the volunteers to contact Miss Grundy's family, but when they couldn't be contacted, the two men rang the local police. The police arrived and rang Dr. Shipman, who told them Mrs. Grundy had died of natural causes. Her daughter Angela was shocked. She wasn't aware that her mother had had any health problems, nor was anyone else. When she spoke to Dr. Shipman, he had basically said that her mother had died of old age. Angela was not buying it. She was a solicitor herself and took in hand her mother's affairs. She was shocked when she got a call from the firm in the village saying that they had her mother's final will. They weren't happy with the way that they had been instructed by her mother, and they needed to clear things up with her. Angela had always handled her mother's affairs. Something wasn't right. When Angela inspected the documents that the local firm had received, she found that there was a typed letter along with a document dated the 9th of June, purporting to be Kathleen's will, leaving everything of her estate to Dr. Shipman and requesting that she be cremated. Both of these things flew in the face of what Angela had understood her mother's wishes to be. She thought that her mother intended on leaving her property to her family, particularly her two grandsons, who she adored, and that she wished to be buried, not cremated. The letter was poorly typed and didn't appear to be the work of her mother, who was meticulous and detail-oriented. But this will was dated later than the will that Angela had in her possession, and, on the face of it, it seemed valid. There had been no fight or falling out with the family, and her mother didn't seem to be getting confused or anything in the period before her death. Angela couldn't explain the stark change of mind her mother appeared to have had, just days before her death, that she had left unexplained. What's more, four days after Mrs. Grundy's death, the local solicitor's firm received a letter from a J. Smith, not suspicious at all there, informing them of Kathleen's death and saying that he was the friend who had typed out the will and lodged it with them. No one had any idea who this guy was, and the firm were less than pleased at the idea of dealing with an estate given that they had never met with any of the people involved. When Angela checked the signature on the document against her mother's lodgments for the charity shop, they didn't match. She spoke to the two people who witnessed the will and was sure that something was up. They had been asked to witness the signature by Dr. Shipman in his office while they were waiting to see him. He had called them into the office and they never saw what was on the paper that Dr. Shipman had them sign. They both thought it was some sort of routine medical form. Those signatures, names, and addresses had then been forged onto the will purporting to be Kathleen Grundy's. Someone was going to have to look into this, and so Angela went to the police. They took fingerprints from those who had seemingly witnessed the will to check against the document that they had. It was clear that the two letters and the will had all been written on the same typewriter. It quickly became clear that the police had a case of forgery on their hands. What was unusual was that their main suspect was a pillar of the community, a much-loved GP, Harold Shipman. But it was clear that this wasn't just a case of forgery. The police went about the process of exhuming Mrs. Grundy's body. It was the first exhumation that had ever been done by the police in the Greater Manchester area, and the coroner approved it after hearing the evidence sworn by the police working on the case. The experts were called in, a company called UK Exhumation Services, and a month after Mrs. Grundy's funeral on the 1st of August, they would begin their work. 
The exhumation took place at night in order that the process might not cause distress to the family or the public in general. The gravesite was treated as a crime scene, and in addition to undertakers who would confirm that the coffin was in fact Miss Grundy's, the police, crime scene officers, and a photographer were present. Soil samples were taken, and though it was raining that night, efforts were made to keep the graveyard tidy in spite of the heavy machinery being used. Despite the attempts made by everyone to be discreet, the activity in the graveyard was noticed. The nursing home across the street were able to see the lights and the work going on and had called the police to report that people were out desecrating the graveyard. They were assured that everything was all right. The next morning, a post-mortem was performed on Kathleen Grundy's body. There was no obvious cause of death on the body, nothing wrong with any of the organs, so tissue samples were taken and sent off for testing. Meanwhile, the police had decided to take action, as Dr. Shipman was likely to hear about the exhumation. They waited outside his surgery on a Saturday until all of his patients had left, and then went up to him as he was locking up. He said he would assist the police in any way possible, and was then presented with a search warrant. To the officers, he appeared arrogant and condescending. They were looking for a typewriter, and so he showed them his, saying that Miss Grundy had borrowed it on occasion. He knew what they were looking for. It turned out that this was the machine that had typed the three documents. It also turned out that Dr. Shipman's prints were on the will, but there were none from the other witnesses, or Mrs. Grundy either. Dr. Shipman contacted his solicitor and the Medical Defense Union, his medical insurance organization. He was questioned at the time. At the exact same time, more police were at Shipman's house. Those officers got a total shock. They arrived at the neat and tidy terrace of houses, and when they entered, they found a hoarder's mess. The house was full of filth, and though they were used to entering houses and catching their breath against the squalid conditions, they were not expecting it here. It was a mess, with piles of paper and clothing in every room. The search turned up nothing relevant to the forgery of Kathleen Grundy's will, but later, a great deal of jewellery that was obviously not Primrose Shipman's was found in the house. There were also boxes and bags full of medical records in both the house and the garage. On the 2nd of September, the toxicology report was in. Kathleen Grundy had died from an overdose of diamorphine. Her death would have occurred within three hours of the fatal dose being taken or administered. The forgery investigation now turned into a murder inquiry. The police felt that they may be only glimpsing the edges of something much bigger than a single murder and the forgery of a will. They were right. But Shipman had attempted to cover his tracks. He added little notes to the margins of Kathleen's medical records, trying to set up a dependence on drugs as an explanation for her death. He was asserting that 81-year-old prim and proper community leader ex-mayor Kathleen Grundy had been a drug addict. But it was obvious to those examining the records that they had been made after the fact, and in one case it was found that Shipman hadn't even been working on the day that he had purportedly treated Kathleen for her drug dependency. After years of visiting elderly patients and having them pass away in his presence, Shipman was now seriously under suspicion. His shoddy forgery of Kathleen Grundy's will 
led to police beginning to ask questions and stumble upon the tip of an iceberg when it came to suspicions about Dr. Harold Shipman. They soon realized that this was only the beginning, but they had no idea the extent of the betrayal they were about to uncover. Next time on the Mens Rea Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea Podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help others to find us, and I love to hear what you think. You can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook at Mens Rea Pod, and check out our discussion group on Facebook, too, for links to articles and pictures from the cases that we cover. I'd like to take a moment to thank our supporters on Patreon. Thank you to one of our recent sponsors, Stephanie Drabble. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Your support means a lot and helps to cover some of the costs of the production of the show. Keep an eye out for new perks, including extra content, coming to Patreon soon. I'll be doing mini-episodes on cases that either don't have enough information for full-length episodes or stories that don't quite fit into our regular format. The first story is going to be the beating death of Brian Murphy in 2004, who was killed outside Annabelle's nightclub in South Dublin. I love telling these stories, and if you love listening to them, any small contribution helps, so do check out the Patreon page. And now on to thank our five-star reviewers on Apple Podcasts. To PEIN359, thank you very much. You found us through True Crime Enthusiast, another great podcast. Thank you very much for your suggestion there as well. Thanks to Weez Axel. Thank you for your compliments about my accent. And thank you to Leandrat. Thank you for your five stars. So don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts or even Facebook and leave a review. I love your feedback and your suggestions. I really just love hearing from you. So do take the time if you can. Our theme song is Quinn's Song, First Dance by Kevin McLeod. With thanks to Ronan McHugh for help with sound engineering. With assistance today from Gilgamesh the Cat. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Mm-hmm.